0: Here in Romans 1, Paul is writing to some people he hasn't yet met. um, And he's explaining why he's so eager to to meet them, to see them face to face. If you look at the end of the previous book, the end of Acts, you discover how Paul eventually did make it to to Rome. By God's providence, he was arrested in Jerusalem, and he was taken to Rome courtesy of the Roman government, uh, since he appealed to Caesar. Um, but at some point before the end of the book of Acts, Paul expresses an eager, earnest desire to to meet with the church at Rome. It, it it's it, it, we're, we're told in in verse fourteen that his rationale he says I am a debtor to both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise. And to unwise. Uh, Paul's, Paul's desire to go to Rome is the same desire that fueled his, his passion to go all over the Mediterranean. Um, he considered himself a slave, a slave to Jesus Christ, who purchased him, the chief of sinners, even though he didn't deserve it with his own blood. And he considered himself really a debtor to all men. He, he, he writes later on in Romans O oh oh no man anything except for to love one another. Well, he says, what, be- what better way to love my neighbors than to share the gospel with them so that they can be saved. So he saw himself as a debtor or a slave to all mankind, and it was necessary for him to preach the gospel. This explains Paul's ministry. He, once, once the gospel came to him and knocked him off his horse in Damascus, he built his life on a different foundation. Um, it became the organizing principle for everything that he did, including this anticipated journey to Rome, and so, and so Paul explains to them in this keynote of the letter. You know, a keynote is um, or, or the th- the theme of the letter is stated here, the theme of um, Beethoven's fifth would be da-da-da-da, and then all the way through the symphony you hear, you hear the same theme repeated in a thousand different ways. Here, Paul establishes the theme of, of his letter, the keynote for his letter, and it, it will be woven um, through the letter with different colors and in different ways. Um, and we see here in verses 16 and 17 first, the essence of, of what the gospel is, and then we see in verse 17 what the gospel contains. So in verse 16, we see that the gospel is the power of God. And this is why Paul says he's, he's not ashamed of it. Uh, Paul was acutely aware of the tendency, even or the temptation, even for believers to be ashamed, embarrassed of the gospel of Christ. Jesus himself was aware of the temptation, even that would come to believers, to be ashamed of him. Peter himself, the rock, denied Jesus. And all of the disciples ran away. And the temptation to flee um, also comes to us once the Holy Spirit has come. The whole world around us is organized um, around the idea that this world is all that there is, or if you're going to get to another world, you have to build the bridge there. That's the organizing principle for all the thinking and activity of the world. And the gospel doesn't have any room in that. And so when Paul begins 1 Corinthians, he's he's very aware that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is seen as weak. It is seen as foolish. It is seen as irrelevant. And it's no different today. Uh, the gospel, you 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 bring the gospel to somebody, and one, they think that they're good enough, so it's not necessary. Two, they think that they've accomplished enough, that they're secure enough, and so it's unnecessary. Or three, they think they're having enough fun without it, so it's unnecessary. Whatever way you slice the pie, its it's deemed irrelevant, unnecessary, and they laugh at you. But that, that temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, to see it as an irrelevant joke, is not limited to the world. It comes to those in the covenant community as well. I was reminded of this listening to um, 2 Chronicles the other day. When Hezekiah and when Josiah um, held Passovers, the northern tribes had already been taken into exile. So they invite the people who are left, up north, to come to the Passover. Hey guys, you know, come on down and they're scoffed at they're laughed at this rem- this this memorial of the exodus out of egypt is scoffed at as it's as if it's an irrelevant thing and there's the same temptation you know, i think paul made a point to say this because this temptation came to him it's always trying to crowd us. Paul says later on, do not be conformed to this world because this, this world is always trying to press us into its mold to say, your gospel is a joke. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with me. So Paul says to the Romans right at the beginning, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We see from his life in the book of Acts that he's He's made the gospel the organizing principle for everything that he does, the linchpin, the foundation um, for, for all of his life, the mainspring of all of his movement. Uh, so he, he shows that he's not ashamed, but he's going to state it as well. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? He's not ashamed of the gospel because it is The power of God in 1 Corinthians will say, the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel, Paul Paul explains elsewhere, is the revelation of the mystery. This is the ancient age-old mystery. Hidden from the foundation of the world. In Job, that that primal book, you know, written around the same time as, as as Genesis, there's the question: how can a man be just? How can a man be righteous before God? And that mystery echoes all through the pages of the Old Testament. How can a man, how can you, how can I, how can we be righteous before God? How can sin be removed? The blood of bulls can't do it. The blood of goats and sheep can't do it. How can sin be removed? How is it that man can be reconciled to God? The world says, I'm good enough. I'm secure enough. I'm fulfilled enough. And God comes in the gospel and he says, no, you're not. Because I made you for me. I made you for all your goodness to be found in me, for all your security to be found in me and not in your possessions and not in your accomplishments, not in your achievements. I made, I made you for all of your fulfillment to be in me. I am love, he says. I am joy. I am peace. This is the teaching of scripture. And you have no good besides me. In you there dwells no good thing. The only way for you to have anything worthwhile is for you to be connected to me, but your sin has made a separation between you and me, so there can be no connection. The power to bring a sinner close to God, that is the greatest power in the universe. It's the power of God himself to give a sinner who deserves eternal damnation, eternal life, That is the greatest power in the universe. It is the power of God to salvation. The scripture says that we are brought forth. We are regenerated. We were born again by the word of truth. The word itself has the power to give you new life. Just as God at the beginning, Paul says, said, let there be light. And there was light. So he has caused his light to shine in our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that word changes you, you become a new creation. His word is the power of God to salvation. So as Paul is going around, bouncing around the Mediterranean in the book of Acts, he is laying the foundations of another world. He is is gathering people into an eternal kingdom. Everyone else who rejects the message will be scoured away and forgotten for all eternity, destroyed in a conscious destruction, always conscious of their damnation, every moment living in regret, in fire, in flames, that every moment are deserved. And Paul is, is crying out all around the Mediterranean, be saved from the coming destruction, be saved from the coming wrath, come into the kingdom. If you could just see it by faith, though outwardly, It might look to the naked eye. Well, what's different? The fellow said he believed in Jesus. But Paul knows if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. Who believes. Now it's not everyone who says they believe. That's American Christianity. You know, you say you believe. Everybody says, Yeah, I call myself a Christian. That's that's not God's perception of things. Jesus said, Many will come to him in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't didn't I prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And he'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not just saying you believe, that saves you. It's actually believing. But on the other hand, there's the opposite temptation that says, it couldn't be you. You're not good enough. Just look at you. You don't qualify for the kingdom of God. God wouldn't want you. Just look at you. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. And the devil comes to try to drive you into despair. When all the time, Saying, it's for everyone who believes. It's God who gives faith. Faith is a miracle. It's the greatest miracle. It's greater than the raising of the dead. It's greater than the healing of the blind and the healing of the lame. Because the gift of faith gives you eternal life where there is no more blindness, there is no more lameness, there is no more death for all eternity. It's the greatest miracle. And if you ask God, for that faith, the essence of faith is to rest in him, to rest in the truth that you are saved by faith. It's to rest in him, is to lean back on him, lay back on him and say, "I know it's true." It's an empty hand held out to receive what God freely gives. So this salvation is for everyone who believes. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek. It's for the Jew first because through the Jews came the Scriptures. Through the Jews came the Messiah according to the flesh. That's why Jesus said that He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And He preached all around Israel. Just... Every once in a while, he'd bump into the region of of Tyre and Sidon for a little breather. But but he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Towards the end of his ministry, the Greeks were coming to see him. But he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is why Paul, when he was bouncing around the Mediterranean, he would go to the synagogue first. Because for the Jews first. That's why when I was up in Somerset earlier this week, I came into a Dunkin' Donuts. There was a fellow in line behind me, had his yarmulke on his head. I had one tract in my pocket. I was not well supplied. (laughs) Mark can exhort me later about that. But I had one one tract, and I thought, here is a man who is clearly Jewish. Here is a man who does not appear to be Jewish. The tract has to go to the Jewish man. Well, he rejected it. I gave it to the other man, and he said, it's for me to keep? (laughs) Well, that's the Lord's providence. But it's for the Jew first. It is for the Jew first. And that should be an organizing principle in our evangelism. But it's also for the Greek. There was an evangelist a couple hundred years or so ago down in the American South. His name was Gideon Blackburn. He was a Scotch-Irish fellow. And a lot of the Presbyterians were Scotch-Irish people. And he was an evangelist who was focusing his ministry on the Native Americans. And he, he didn't feel that he was getting much support from his presbytery. So he came to a presbytery meeting decked out in a kilt and a staff in his hand. He got their attention. When it was his turn to speak, he got up and he told his brothers, brothers, in time past, our forefathers were running the hills, wild, painted blue, naked. And somebody came to these wild savages and they preached the gospel to them. And that changed everything for us. And so here we are, the Presbyterian church, and here are people in the same condition as our forefathers. If no one had brought the gospel to our forefathers, we would be on our way to hell right now. So will you support me in reaching these people that we're not paying so much attention to? We do well to ask ourselves the question. I was talking to Sister Paul a little earlier. She said the gospel's been in her family for at least 300 years. <clears throat> I know on my, on my dad's side, the gospel goes back at least four generations. Um, on my mom's side, probably I know f- for a fact about the same. I expect probably further. Uh, some of you may have, may have just come to Christ yourselves um, uh, without believing family. Perhaps your first generation. Whatever the case may be, the reason every single one of us, the reason any one of us, if you believe, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, the reason you have faith in Christ is, be- is because somebody along the line believed that the gospel is also for the Gentiles. Yeah. It was also for you, or your father, or your grandfather, or your great-grandfather, whoever it was. Somebody believed and were willing to proclaim the gospel to them. And so we need to turn around and return the favor because we're debtors too. We're slaves of God and we're slaves to all people. We, we owe a debt to everyone to love them by sharing them the, with them the gospel. That's the word of Paul. So, so this is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to, to salvation, eternal salvation in the presence of God. The, the The complete fulfillment of what you were meant to be as a human being. Eternal growth in the knowledge of God. Eternal growth into the image of Jesus Christ. Eternal enjoyment of God and everything that he has created in the new heavens and new earth. Utter security in his arms. Complete joy in his presence forever. Eternal love filled with His Spirit. Salvation. Power for salvation. Now, why is it that the gospel is God's power that brings salvation? Well, Paul says that the reason in verse 17 is that the gospel contains something of inexpressible beauty and preciousness. It contains the righteousness of God. Now, when, when Luther was, I think he was trying to teach through the book of Romans there at the University of Wittenberg, he got to this portion and he became angry. He already had his issues with the Lord. Uh, he had been trying hard to please the Lord. In fact, he gave up a law career to go become a monk. He, um, He would go to confession six hours at a time to confess any sin that he could think of. He was trying to be as good a priest as he could, the most holy calling he could think of. And yet he was aware that he didn't measure up. And and he thinks to himself, God in his law reveals his righteousness and condemns me. His law condemns me. And now I come to the gospel. It's supposed to be good news. And I come to the gospel and it says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He says, well, I'm lost. If God is is revealing his righteousness in the gospel, I can never live up to that standard and I must be lost. I must be under condemnation and a curse forever. And he was angry at God. But he said he beat upon Paul at this place, trying to understand what Paul meant, what he was talking about. What does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? And finally, after study, he realized it's not righteousness as a standard that you fall short of. It's righteousness Kids, put the cards down, please. It's righteousness as a gift. It's the righteousness of God Himself given to the sinner. And Luther said that when he realized that, it was as if he walked into paradise through open doors. The righteousness of God given to me. How's it given? It's a gift and it comes in the form of a garment. There you are in Zechariah chapter 3. And your garments are filthy and the devil is accusing you. Look at him, Lord. Look at him. Look at all the dirt on him. He remembers. <clears throat> he knows what he did. He knows what he thought. He knows this habitual sin, this besetting sin. Look at him, Lord. I have valid accusations that I am bringing against this person. And you would think, given the scenario, the evidence is right there. The garments are filthy. Sin has been committed. There's no disputing that. It seems that the the devil has an airtight case as the prosecuting attorney. Airtight case. This one is deserving of condemnation, of burning, of the curse. You deserve to be cast from the presence of God. Satan wins the case. But then God says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a a brand snatched from the burning? The the Lord rebuke you? But didn't, didn't the devil have a valid point? About all those sins you've committed? Why is the Lord rebuking the devil and not rebuking you? He should be rebuking you. Look at all the sins you committed. You would think he would join his voice to the devil. Yeah, you deserve to die. All of these things are valid accusations. You deserve to die and depart from me forever. But that's not what he says. (coughs) He says, Lord, rebuke you, Satan. This is a brand plucked from the burning. And then he goes and gives orders. They remove the filthy garments. They bring clean garments for you. You put them on. Zachariah calls out, hey, don't, don't forget the turban on his head. You're covered from head to toe in clean garments. The righteousness of Jesus, all the good he ever did, says that he went about doing good. All he ever did was good. All that came forth from him was good. All of that covers you. It wraps you around like a garment from head to toe. So the righteousness of Jesus is given to you. It is a gift imputed to you, and it comes in the form of a garment. It's a gift. It's a garment. It's also the, the very ground that you walk on. In the hymn that we sang, um, this was emphasized. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So there's this idea that our hope for heaven, our hope for to be um, with God forever, that is built on the foundation of the blood of Jesus that washes away sin, and on the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. And all other grounds, any other foundation for your hope is sinking sand. The only ground that your hope can rest on is the ground of the righteousness of Jesus. And this ground, we have to emphasize, This ground is under your feet every step of the way to heaven. It says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now this corresponds to something that John says in John 1. That, he's talking about Christ, and he says, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. The idea is that Jesus gives to you, he imparts to you moment by moment by moment, grace for the moment, unconditional love for the moment, total acceptance for the moment, grace after grace after grace, grace replacing grace, so that at every moment of your journey, there's a fresh supply of grace out of an infinite reservoir, and it's meant for you. And corresponding to that, we see that, The righteousness of God is revealed to us from faith to faith. So every step of the way, even if you fall, the righteousness of of God is there under you. Um, Even if you feel like you're drowning, the righteousness of God is there to rescue you. If you feel like everything around you is dark, the righteousness of God is your light. It's the very grounds that you walk on. With the righteousness of God given to you, you have complete security. So that legally, God sees you as righteous. He delights in you. His favor is upon you. The light of his countenance shines on you. His smile is on you. He loves you. He's enraptured with you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing because you are righteous. And so every step of the way, you are utterly secure. Every, every step is on solid ground. There are, there are utterly sure and solid stepping stones through the most treacherous paths of this life. You are, are walking upon the righteousness of Christ. You are completely secure in him from faith to faith. From the moment you believe to the moment you're called home. From faith, as you advance in faith, if you feel like you're faltering in faith, that righteousness of God secures you. So, the righteousness of God is given to you as a gift. It surrounds you as a garment. It is the ground that you walk on each step of the way from faith to faith, and it is the guarantee of life. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, it's written back in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2. And we're told there in Habakkuk 2 that you know, Habakkuk is intrepidation. He's concerned because the Babylonians are coming down to judge the people of God. They're going to take them into exile. And so so he's in in consternation. He's very troubled about this. Um, But then he receives a vision. And he's told that that, that a, a big message needs to be written on something like a billboard. You you might picture a big flat stone covered with lime with big Hebrew characters on it, kind of like they did with the blessing and the curse on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So God says, the vision is coming and it will not tarry, and write this in big letters so that the runner can read it. So as he's running, he can catch the message and carry it on. What is the message that needs to be written in big letters emblazoned so that everybody can know, so that the messengers can can shout it all over? The message is, the just shall live by faith. Corresponding to that, the proud one's soul is not right within it. It looks as if the Babylonians will overcome the people of God. It looks as if those who are having faith in Jehovah will be swept away and destroyed, and the Babylonians will prevail. But God says, no, this is the vision that everyone needs to hear. The just will live by faith. The proud one will be destroyed. And the humble person, even if he's taken into exile, even if he dies, he lives, he will live. He will last, he will endure for all eternity by faith. This is quoted in Hebrews, in the passage that Kurt read. Here, the scenario is a little different. There is a Jewish community and the Christians are being expelled from it. They're being driven out um, because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, they're enduring the plundering of their goods um, and and various hardships, and they're tempted to go back to finding their their security in in obedience to Jewish tradition. And So the writer of Hebrews quotes Habakkuk, but also interprets Habakkuk. And he says that the vision, the fulfillment of the vision is Jesus. Jesus has come. The vision has arrived. He did not delay. He has come and whoever believes in him will live. But they must not shrink back. But then the writer of Hebrews says, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So there is that temptation to pull back into previous ways of behavior. Whether it's works religion, or whether it's old habits but faith is something that propels you forward because faith is always something that lifts you up, right? Just like Peter on the waves. He's looking at Jesus. Then he looks away. He starts falling. Then he says, Lord, save me. And the hand is right there to save him. Because the righteousness of Jesus is on you as a garment, because it's the very ground that you walk on. Somebody said the the Christian may fall down many times on the ship of life, but he never falls overboard. And so although there may be a temptation to be kind of sucked down into the undertow of works religion or of past behavior or of worldly ways of thinking, that statement echoes still. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you look to Jesus, you trust in Him, you realize that His righteousness is given to you, so, so your past blunders, as a believer or an unbeliever, they're forgotten, they're done away with, and that gives you courage to move forward. Not shrink back to destruction, but to press on, because you know, I have a guarantee of life, and I'm, I'm heading that way. It is quoted also in the book of Galatians, where Paul says, As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. But Jesus Christ became a curse for us when, because it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that all that's left over for the one who believes in Jesus is the righteousness of Jesus given to them. And so, Paul says in Galatians, the just will live by faith. They are no longer under a curse. You believe, you receive righteousness, you live. Jesus died, you live. And here... It is written. Paul says the just will live by faith because as he's about to explain, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this wrath of God is revealed against Jews and Greeks, religious people and non-religious people. Everyone universally is under the wrath of God. But the only guarantee of life is in this righteousness of Christ. As Paul Describes it in Romans 5. The grace in which we stand. A righteousness that surrounds you like a castle. That surrounds you like a garment. That's the ground on which you stand. That's the gift that you've received from a God who never lies. The just will live by faith. So, Jesus commands... You to believe in the good news. That was his message, the beginning of, of, of Mark, Mark one. Believe in the gospel. This is the direct direct order from Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, believe in the good news. You don't need to be ashamed of it. It's the best news ever. Faith in this gospel brings you into harmony with with the living God. Gives you a righteousness that you never earned. Gives you a security that you could never provide for yourself. Gives you fulfillment that you would never find in, in a million years trying to find it for yourself. It brings you into union with the living God who made you for himself. Believe in this gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone. That's for you too. That's for you too. The Bible says, He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who believes in Him is not condemned. And Jesus wants you to believe. That's why He tells you to believe. He says, Believe in the good news. And he who believes is not condemned. Faith means writing your name right there for everyone who believes. Will you write, there, you write your name there by faith? Yes, I believe. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, it doesn't make any difference. For everyone who believes. Will you receive the righteousness of God? God is, God is handing His righteous to you, righteousness to you as a gift. The perfection of Jesus to wrap you around as a garment. He gives it to you, and he gives it to you for keeps. It's not just yours when you feel like you have it. It's not just yours when you're feeling strong, because it has, um, your strength or weakness is irrelevant, because it's not something that you earn. It's not like you were strong enough to get it. It's not like there were a line of people, and God picked the best resume. No. The the, the resume for qualifying for the righteousness of Jesus, you have to write on it, sinner. You you have to admit it. You have to write, sinner, 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 sinner. And then turn over the next page and keep writing it. And you acknowledge you have no hope of salvation in yourself, but you're petitioning the king who commanded you to believe, saying, Lord, I want to have that faith. You commanded me to believe, but I can't even believe without you. So give me faith. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. You said it's for everyone who believes, so give me that faith. And I'm gonna open up your word, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna open it up, and I'm gonna listen because you said faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, I hear your word, and give me that faith that you tell me I've got to have. Because it's written, The righteous will live by faith. I have no other shot, Lord. If I don't have faith, I'm dead. Literally. If I don't have faith, I'm dead already because I don't have faith. I'm dead. I'm a walking dead man the rest of my life and then I'm eternally dead. God, give me this faith. It's the only way I can receive that righteousness. Give me the faith. Give me the righteousness. Give me Yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that um, Your good news would be the organizing principle of our lives, that we would not be ashamed of it, that we would not be of those who draw back to destruction, but of those who are saved, those who believe to the saving of the soul.